When I was in a foreign country, I heard a pastor make a joke about a Jew. I said, I don't know how you can make that joke, my friend. God says, I'll bless those who bless the Jews. I'll curse those. Don't make a joke about the Jewish people. I don't find that funny. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in Revelation chapter 12 in a message entitled, The Woman and the Red Dragon. This passage is within the context of the various judgments that will befall the earth during the time known as the Great Tribulation. And we have seen that the woman referred to in verses 1 and 2 is the nation Israel, which will play a pivotal role during this time that the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble. As we pick up, Dr. Brogy laments over how many church historians have discounted and even disparaged the Jewish race. Revelation 12 is critical to understanding the rest of the Revelation. And it has huge implications in your day-to-day personal life. But there was a fellow, a late church father, as we call him, called Origen, who lived during a time in human history that to preach that Jesus was a king who would have a literal kingdom on the earth would not go over well with a Roman emperor. It could mean your life. So he somewhat allegorized the scripture. There's a fellow who came after him. His name was Augustine of Hippo. Augustine uh, died in the year 430, and he too said that the church was the new Israel. He was a, what we call today a staunch Calvinist. Now, obviously, Calvin comes centuries later. He doesn't come until 1509, but still he's called Augustine the father of predestination. Why? Because of his view of Israel. So when Reformed theologians come to Romans 9, 10, and 11, if God is done with Israel, if there's no future or significance for the Jew, when you read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you can't read it in reference to the people of Israel in God's election of them in chapter 10, their rejection of him in chapter 9, their rejection of him in chapter 10, their, his future restoration of them in chapter 11. You have to read it in a different way. So Calvin came to Romans 9, and he says, it's not dealing with God choosing Israel out of all the nations of the world, but God choosing you to go to heaven and you go to hell. Sorry, no inference implied there, all right? So it creates a dynamic that is unhealthy as you approach the Word of God. Now, let me just say parenthetically, because of this, the way some Christians, and God is their judge, I'm not, the way some Christians viewed Israel was not always in a healthy way. Let me read Augustine. Protestants love to quote Augustine, as do Catholics. They both claim, both groups claim them as their own. Augustine said this of the Jews. He believed that the Jews, he says, how hateful to me are the enemies of your scripture. How I wish that you would slay them, the Jews, with your two-edged sword so that there should be none to oppose your word. And then he writes in the treatise against the Jews that they, the Jews, must be allowed to survive but never to thrive. So there are proper punishments for their refusal to recognize the truth that the church claims. You go into Yad Vashem. Some of you will be there with me, Lord willing, in about 
10 days. And the very first exhibit you see are these words written by Augustine. These hateful, heinous words about the Jewish people. No wonder Jewish people kind of just broad brush us all together. Oh, this is what Christians believe. So here's Augustine. He says, let them live so that they might suffer. And again, his theology is adopted by the Roman Catholic Church. And the Roman Catholic Church to this day says, we are the new Israel. We are the people of God. There's no significance for the Jewish people. Well, you got men like Calvin and Luther who grow up in the Catholic Church. They're studying to be priests. One becomes a priest. One is in the process. And they think, look, we're looking at all this corruption with the Pope and the cardinals and the bishops. They can't be the people of God. Only those who've been transformed by a second birth who are born again. And so they redefine the church, but they keep the same doctrine. That the church, the body of born-again believers, not the institutionalized church, the body of born-again believers is the new Israel, and God is done with the Jewish people. So here's the words of John Calvin. He said, and I quote, The Jews are a rotten and unbending people whose obstinance deserves they be oppressed without measure or end, and that they die in their misery without the pity of anyone. Oh, that's hurtful. Martin Luther recorded these words in 1563. Listen. When then, what then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us, and we know about their lying and blasphemy and cursing, we cannot tolerate them if we do not wish to share in their lies, curses, and blasphemies. Let me give you some of my honest advice. First, their synagogues should be set on fire, and whatever does not burn up should be covered and spread over with dirt so that no one may be able to see a cinder or a stone of it. And this ought to be done for the honor of God and of Christianity in order that God may see that we are Christians and that we have not wittingly tolerated or approved of such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his sons and his Christians. Secondly, their homes should likewise be broken down and destroyed. For they perpetuate the same things there that they do in their synagogues. For this reason, they ought to be put under one roof or in a sizable or in a stable like gypsies in order that they may realize that they are not masters in our land as they boast, but miserable captives as they complain incessantly before God with bitter wailing. Thirdly, they should be deprived of their prayer books and Talmuds in which such idolatry lies cursing in blasphemy are taught. Fourthly, their rabbis must be forbidden under threat of death not to teach anymore. Fifthly, passport and traveling privileges should be absolutely forbidden to the Jews. You ought not, you cannot protect them unless in the eyes of God you want to share in all of their abomination. To sum up, Luther writes, Dear princes and nobles who have Jews in your domains, if this advice of mine does not suit you, then find a better one so that you and we may all be free of this insufferable, devilish burden, the Jews. And so Augustine adopted his theology from origin. Catholicism, Catholicism adopted their theology from Augustine. And Luther and Calvin from Romanism with a different spin on it. 
And the problem with all these men is they did not understand the role of the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, and the salvation of the world. God made an unconditional covenant with the people of Israel. And so when they read, again, Romans 9, it was not in terms of national election because God's done with the Jew. It was in terms of personal election. Look, you give Romans 9, 10, and 11 to any new Christian who has not been yet educated beyond his own intelligence and say, give me in one word what Romans 9, 10, and 11 is, and he'll tell you, well, it's obviously about Israel. You have to be educated into their position beyond the simple, plain reading of Scripture. And so in 9, he deals with their past election. In 10, why are they in unbelief? The same reason most Gentiles are in unbelief. Because they don't think they need a Savior. Most Gentiles think they are good enough to get into heaven through their own efforts and their good life. But in chapter 11, he deals with their future restoration. So the chapter opens with these words. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Then he plainly states in verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. You think God was surprised by what the Jewish people did in his day? Progonosco, God foreknew this. He knew in advance precisely that though he would come to his own, his own would not receive him. And so one of the great tragedies unfolding in the 21st century, and it is accelerating, is what we call replacement theology. Most of you realize that historically, most evangelicals in America were pro-Israel. They understood that God used the Jewish people to bring the first coming, and he will use them to bring the second coming, and that Israel is God's prophetic yardstick of what he is doing in the world. But that's beginning to change amongst Protestant evangelicals. Look, I believe the only reason God hasn't smushed us as a nation is because beginning with Harry Truman, there were evangelicals who had access into the Oval Office that were exhorting him, pleading with him to protect Israel as a people. Here we are as a nation, 60 million of us are missing, We've taken the technology that we developed as a people, we call it abortion, and we have sold it to nations across the world, and 600 million little babies are gone across the planet. As a nation, we, through our movies and our music, have promoted sensuality and adultery and premarital sex and extramarital sex as normal. Now we are promoting homosexuality as an alternative lifestyle and transgenderism. Well, who are we to judge? Who are we to say what sex you are? That it's not measured between your legs, but between your ears. That's America. I'm telling you, if we oppose Israel, it's over for this nation. Why do you suppose Adolf Hitler had Martin Luther read in the churches in Germany? He did for a reason. Because he wanted the Jewish people, who for the most part were nominal Christians and not born again at this time, he wanted them to oppose the Jewish 
people. And so the seeds are being sown for an anti-Semitism that we're going to study in the Revelation that is eventually going to sweep the world where all the nations of the world in this final seven-year segment of history are going to oppose Israel, including the United States. Now look here at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven a woman. This woman is not the church, so the church is represented as a woman. She's represented as the bride of Christ. Just remember, she's the bride of Christ, and clearly in this context, uh, she's not giving birth to Christ. It's just the opposite. Christ gives birth to the church. The church didn't exist in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke futuristically, I will, I will, I will build my church. If you want to study that, it's one of the sessions in the ecclesiology course in the Institute of Biblical Studies, and I walk through five proofs why the church, why we know it didn't begin when Jesus walked on the earth, but it began literally actually on the day of Pentecost after his ascension. That would be for your future study. And so a great sign appears in heaven, and it is indeed a sign. This cannot be the church, it certainly cannot be Mary, because we're going to see in a moment that the woman flees into the wilderness. Oh, but if all of Revelation, with the exception of chapter 19, took place before 70 AD, then you could make Mary fit in here, and you could wedge her in. But again, do we have freedom to interpret prophecy that way? If I say to you, I'll meet you tonight for dinner at 6 o'clock. Hmm. I wonder what the pastor meant by dinner. I wonder what he meant by six o'clock. You know, no, I meant what I said. I said what I meant. God gave language to communicate. And so, again, God gave us a pattern on how to interpret the Scripture. Now, two truths are highlighted about this woman. The first concerns the identity of the woman, the identity of the woman. Let's read the verse and step through it carefully. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, the wonderful thing about interpreting prophecy is that for the most part, it interprets itself. And when there's a figure of speech involved, God alerts us to it. And he does. He calls this Woman, a sign, a sign, a samion, a mega samion, a great sign. Remember, a sign pictures something. Baptism, we just baptized a dear, precious little girl today. She pictured the death, burial, and resurrection by her baptism. So what does this sign picture? Now, remember, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture itself. And while there are 404 verses in the Revelation, 300 of those 404 verses have some allusion to the Old Testament. The challenge is, is it never says, David said, Isaiah said. You just have to read with a certain knowledge of the Old Testament. But the Old Testament, in many ways, is the code to unfolding the revelation. And you may not know a whole lot about the Bible. You say, you know, this sounds somewhat familiar. Maybe this is not Virgo, as these guys said. And what is this referred to? Well, remember in Genesis 37, 
the biography of Joseph that's given in the last quarter of the book of Genesis. And Joseph has a dream of the sun and the moon and the 12 stars. And of course, the sun represented Jacob, who's later renamed by God Israel. And the moon represented Rebekah. And the 12 stars represented the 12 sons that pictured the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel from whom the Messiah would come. And so the uh, symbolism is unfolded for us in the Bible itself. And it's not surprising that God would describe these uh, 12 tribes that represent Israel as a woman because throughout the Old Testament, God pictures Israel as his bride as he does the church today. Right out in the margin next to verse 1, Isaiah 54, 5 and 6. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 54, 5 and 6. For your husband is your maker whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. So it's not by accident that God uses the imagery here of the sun, moon, and stars, because the Bible says the heavens are declaring the glory of God. And in the Old Testament, in passages like Genesis 15, Abraham's descendants are compared to the stars in the sky, and Israel as a nation becomes a picture of God's glory and honor. So the identity of the woman is no mystery. And again, we'll see in just a moment, it is impossible to take it any other way because of the verses that follow. Beyond the identity, let's think for just a moment about the destiny of the woman, the destiny of the woman. We read now in verse 2, and she was with child, and she cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. Now, again, this takes us back to Genesis 3. The very first prophecy in all of the Bible of a Savior is found in Genesis 3. I preached the sermon one time at Christmas. I called it the first Christmas sermon in the Bible. It's found in Genesis 3.15. The Proto-Evangelion, we call it in Latin, the first gospel where God in that passage speaks about the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head. Now, most of the time when we think of a woman, we don't think of a seed because the woman doesn't have seed. The man does. But because God is going to bring about a supernatural birth, he is going to allow conception to take place in some dear Jewish woman's womb by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so Jewish women for centuries have recognized that some dear Jewish girl would give birth to the Messiah, and it's the earnest desire of every pious Jewish woman even to this day who do not know Jesus yet as Lord. And the Old Testament, both the prophet Isaiah and the prophet Jeremiah use the uh, imagery of Israel being in labor. And when you come to Romans chapter 9, God describes the Jews with these words. Listen, Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law, the temple service and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, the Messiah, according to the flesh, who is over all God blessed forever. Amen. Paul is telling us that Israel is going to give us the Messiah, that he is going to come from the flesh and blood of a people called the Jews. So if you hate the Jews, you hate Jesus, because Jesus is a Jew. And so in the fullness of time, 
Messiah steps into the world through this God-ordained, God-protected, God-called, God-blessed people through whom the Lord Jesus comes. And this is why we're warned in Genesis chapter 12. And I'll bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. Then you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. You know, I was in a foreign country. I heard a pastor make a joke about a Jew. I said, I don't know how you can make that joke, my friend. God says, I'll bless those who bless the Jews. I'll curse those. Don't make a joke about the Jewish people. I don't find that funny. Every Christian is blessed because of Israel. We have a Bible that is a Jewish book written by all Jewish people who gave us a Jewish Messiah, and you should love and bless Israel because God does, and our Jewish people need to know that the greatest friends they have on earth are evangelical born-again believers. As Hanok Taylor reminded us, did he not, those who came to the luncheon, he was just thankful. He was thankful that we have evangelicals who stand behind Israel. But as we were just speaking recently, it's changing. And it's changing very, very fast. So the first truth concerns the identity of the woman. The second truth that he gives concerns the animosity towards the woman. The animosity towards the woman. And so this animosity, this hatred, this disdain, as we're going to see, is driven by Satan himself, the prince of the power of the air who's working in the hearts of disobedient people. And he gives us two realities about Satan. First, he gives us a description of the dragon, a description of the dragon here in verse 3. Then another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now we're instructed about another sign. Again, a sign is symbolic of something, something that appeared in the heavens. Look, I forget, you know, you, you, you hear about this stuff that you read in these comic strips about the devil, this guy in a little red suit, and he's got a pitchfork and a forked tail. That's pure fiction. That comes nowhere from the Word of God. He is using here a picture of a red dragon to help us to understand a very important spiritual reality. And the sign that John uses is not to help us to know what Satan looks like, but what he acts like. He wants you to see by using this description of a great red dragon to know what he acts like. Now, who is this dragon? Well, it's no mystery. You can fast forward in your mind to verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world. Fourteen times in the Revelation, Satan is called the dragon. And it's a beautiful word description that God would give us as a sign because of the heinous terror and bloodshed that dragons would bring. And by the way, don't tell your children that dragons are mythological creatures because they are not. There were literally dragons one time upon the earth. And one of the best presentations you will ever see documenting the historicity of this animal that is now extinct is at the Creation Museum. Now, he's called the red dragon. And we've already seen the word peros in chapter 6 of the rider on the red horse who's granted to take peace away from the earth. 
And Satan is a great red dragon because he is the author of bloodshed. Jesus said of him, the thief comes only to kill and to destroy and to steal. Jesus also said of the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning. And so the color red is a beautiful symbol. He is a, this is a great sign. Why? Because great, Satan is a great person in the realm of evil, of course. Now, originally he was called Lucifer. Now, some of our English Bibles, instead of translating the word, interpret the meaning of the name Lucifer, which means the son of the morning, but you're in the same place. You call him the son of the morning or you call him Lucifer, it doesn't matter to me. But let me just say this, most people when they think Lucifer, they think of, ooh, that's evil. But actually, Lucifer was his good name. That was before he fell. That was his holy name. Before he ever rebelled against God and became the dragon, became Satan of old. And behold, it says here in verse 3, reading a little further, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, the seven heads... The ten horns, the seven diadems are going to be explained in great depth in Revelation 13 and 17. And we've already seen, we've experienced it a few times. John will just drop a little preview and then he'll explain it later. He's dropping a preview here, but in chapters 13 and 17 of the Revelation, he is going to unfold it for us. And he will interpret this for us. You might want to write over the word seven heads, 17 colon 9 for Revelation 17, 9. Because there we learn that the seven heads represent seven mountains. And then over 10 horns, write 17 colon 12, 17 colon 12. Because there we're told that 10 horns represent 10 kings. Now, horns in the Bible, if you're with us in our study of Daniel, and there is reason to this madness, why do we study a Daniel before Revelation? Because Daniel, in many ways, unlocks a lot of the symbolism in the Revelation. Some of you are new to the church, and you told me that you're studying the book of Daniel, and what a huge help it is to you right now as you study the Revelation, and it will be. And some of us need to go back maybe and review it. But if you remember, horns in the Bible are a symbol of power, and heads are a symbol of wisdom. And it's magnified by the adjective seven heads, because seven is the number of completion or perfection as it's used in Scripture. And so the devil has seven heads because he's full of wisdom. Remember what Ezekiel said, thus says the Lord God, you have the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Now, again, I won't spend a lot of time on this because we're going to study these 10 kings later that are going to come together as a confederation of nations, and amongst them will come an 11th nation from which the Antichrist will come. But let me just say for now, the common fallacy that the devil is ugly and stupid could be is so far from the truth you can't even believe it. When he was created, he was one of the most beautiful creatures God ever made. And he is by no means a dummy. God gifted and blessed him full of wisdom. And of course, now he's using his intellect 
for evil. He's not some ig- ugly creature. He's one of the most beautiful creatures God ever made, and he's not stupid. He is smart, he's clever, and wise in the realm of evil. Now, we've just cracked the door on what John says. A great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his head were seven diadems. And as we'll see, as John will do over and over again, he'll come back and he'll detail it for us. So hold on to your pew belt, and we'll come to it later. When we conclude our study entitled, The Woman and the Red Dragon, we'll look at the destruction of the dragon. To listen to this message in its entirety, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and request program REV28. Tomorrow, Dr. Brogy's wife, Audrey, is in this time slot with her program for women, Mothering from the Heart. And when we return Monday, we'll conclude our look at the woman and the red dragon. Join us then as we search the scriptures.